Before we go to God's Word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this time of year is full of juxtapositions of things that are strange to find together. Your power and your glory with your humility and your willingness to become a man. Heavenly hosts singing your praise and kings trying to hunt you down. God, this is a a time when we can confess that you indeed are the Lord of the universe and that your arrival here on planet Earth made all the difference. We give you thanks for your incarnation, for your willingness to come, to inspire a word to then share with us what you did and how you did it. Father, we, on a day-by-day basis, taste and see how far the curse has spread and, and to think that you have come to make your blessings flow as far evokes wonder and praise in us. Give us your perspective. Show us your glory. It's what we need even if we don't know it. On a busy day like today, help us to stop and to refocus on what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Merry Christmas Eve, or however you say that. Um, I wanted to start uh, the sermon this morning with a picture. This picture is of Li Jingzi, uh, a mother being reunited with her son, Mao Yin, in a northern province in China. Uh, Mao, when he was a boy, was walking home with his dad one morning, and the dad stopped to get a drink of water and turned around, and the boy was gone. According to the BBC, the group that kidnapped Mao sold him to a family without children for $840. He was two years old when it happened. Mao's parents then appeared on TV and constantly making ploys to find their son. They distributed more than 100,000 flyers. The mother quit her job and spent three decades looking for her son. And in, in doing so, she developed a family for helping families in this situation to return their lost children. Mao, the son, even remembers watching interviews on the TV of this persistent mother on a quest for her son, not realizing that he was the son. Police eventually used a picture of Mao as a child to develop an adult sketch of him and used facial recognition technology, and they found him. He had no idea that his biological parents were looking for him. And so this is a picture of them reuniting when he was 34 32 years after waiting. Anticipation. Waiting. Sudden news. Finally. Reunited. This mother could finally get her questions answered, right? What was his childhood like? What, did, what foods did he prefer? What sports did he play? What subjects did he enjoy? What type of profession does he have? Does he have a family? In last week's passage in Luke, the We had another long-awaited child. This long-awaited Messiah was born. And the questions of these Chinese parents about the past, Joseph and Mary really had looking towards the future. Questions like, what is this baby going to (laughs) do? When is he going to do it? How is it going to happen? 
They had more questions than they had answers. And it wasn't only Joseph and Mary or a few family members in their community who were awaiting the arrival of this child. We sing about Jesus, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And that's true. Ever since the Garden Rebellion, God's people have been awaiting for the serpent crusher to arrive. And after all this waiting, and then suffering, and more waiting, and then slavery, and then deliverance, and then more waiting, finally, after millennia have passed, he comes. And in this morning's passage, the news that was known by the lowly shepherds and by the heavenly hosts would be shared with these people who have been waiting in this way. God's salvation arrives in a person, and the details of even how he would deliver we find in our passage this morning. Luke 2, verse 21 through 40. Turn there if you haven't yet. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. Before I read it for us, I'd like you to look for three things. A faithful family, a prepared people, and a revealed Savior. Let's pick it up in verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in all the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Did you happen to notice those three groups? A faithful family, a prepared people, and a revealed Savior. We'll just show a quick outline on the screen uh, of this list. 
Because what actually happens in this text is it, it bookends with this faithful family. And then there's kind of the next section of a prepared people which really point to a revealed Savior. So we could also look at it this way. If you go to the next slide. It kind of shows a, uh, it's called a chiasm of some, some sort, which is pointing really to the, the central focus of the passage, which is this revealed Savior. And so that's how we're going to go through the text in these three different groups, not just verse by verse, but we'll talk about this faithful family, the prepared people, and then a revealed Savior. So it starts off with this faithful family. A lot's happened. We had a lot of drama last week with uh, censuses and shepherds and angels and the baby arriving and... Um, we see the humility of Christ, as we saw. I hope you took advantage of the opportunity to treasure up things in your heart and to invite others along with that. But here we see the continuation of that faithful family in a couple different ways. They do really what Zechariah and Elizabeth had done with John, right? On the eighth day, they circumcised their son and they named him. They named him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. This simple act, it shows us two things. One, that God has a, a mission for this child, right, as we've seen all along. But two, we see this faithful family who's willing to obey God, to give this name that they had received even before conception. And we see this faithfulness kind of cascade over into verses 22 through 24 and their adherence to the law. 22 starts off, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses. This was largely from Leviticus 12. that explains that male children are to be circumcised on the eighth day because the woman was considered unclean for seven days before that. But then Leviticus 12 also states that there's an ongoing period of 33 days where the woman is, uh, goes through a purification process before she's allowed to enter the sanctuary again or to um, touch holy instruments or those kinds of things. So at the end of this purification time, the, the family was to bring a few animals for an offering uh, for the priest who can make atonement for the, uh, the uncleanness in the family. They were to bring a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon, a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. But if you couldn't afford the lamb, you could bring two of one of the birds. And that's what we find in our text. And that's what's happening. They're going through the, the ordinary steps of purification according to the law. They're a faithful Jewish family. But we also see there's an added nuance to this because Jesus is the firstborn son. And according to the law, he had to be consecrated. We find this in the book of Exodus. Interestingly enough, do you remember what happens right after the Passover? Where God brings the final judgment on, on Egypt and all the firstborn children of the Egyptians die, but the sons of Israel and the children of Israel are saved. God immediately institutes this Passover and... This consecration of the firstborn, it means to set apart either the first animal uh, that was born or the first child that was born. Because he passed over the firstborn of Israel, God lays claim to the firstborn. And so he says you have to go and you have to redeem or buy back that firstborn through a sacrifice given at the temple and through a, a, a little bit that you would pay. And so children would be redeemed in this way, a firstborn child. So that was also happening in this scene. And so we see Joseph and Mary going about their normal Jewish obedience to the law. We see a faithful family. It's in the midst of, why does this matter? Why does Luke take time to actually record this? Because it's kind of in the everyday obedience. 
that God designs and orchestrates and choreographs this intersection of, of interesting people and more revelation. Like they haven't had enough of that already, right? But more is coming. But it's in that environment of daily obedience that God decides to do the extraordinary. This scene also helps us to anticipate Jesus' purpose. It's, it's not just coincidence that this firstborn consecration uh, that requires a sacrifice of a lamb is the very thing that they're going through while the Lamb of God enters the temple. There's a lot of questions that, that arise out of that Passover scene in Exodus, like, how could God pass over the children of Israel even though they were just as sinful as the Egyptians? How can lambs, even thousands of lambs, untold millions of lambs, be sacrificed and atone for sin when we know that animals can't possibly do that? Where is the buyback power of God's redemption coming from, even from the book of Exodus? And the answer to those questions walks into the temple with Joseph and Mary, right? It's the baby Jesus. He's the substance of the, the foreshadowing that's going on. As Luke and as uh, th- this scene stirs up God's reminders of God's deliverance from Egypt to redeem the firstborn. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So more is going on here than just everyday obedience. We have a a special uh, insight into the purpose of Jesus through this ordinary obedience to the law. Next, we have, and now that we've looked at those bookends, and, and really the end in verse uh, 39 just points to that same faithfulness and that same obedience. But we also, along the way, as we move closer towards that central revelation, we meet a couple of people, two elderly people, who are kind of representative or emblematic of the waiting of Israel. These are people who are on the edge of their seat, who are earnestly and prayerfully fasting and spending day after day in the temple, eagerly awaiting the arrival of Messiah. And Luke refers to them to lend credibility to the claim that this child is indeed the Messiah because of Simeon and Anna. These people with decades of faithfulness are going to join in concert and their messages are going to dovetail together to show who this baby is. It just adds more anticipation to this scene. This is a God-scheduled endorsement. Notice the similarity between Simeon and Anna and how God uses them to set up the revelation of the Savior. They have similar resumes. Look at verse 25 in speaking of Simeon. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him. We're not entirely sure that he was a priest. He could have been in the court of Gentiles or the court of women at this point when he encountered the family. But we, just, we know he's a godly Jewish man. And Anna is described as a prophetess who's a daughter of Phanuel, a tribe of Asher, which just means she was a genuine uh, Jew. And to add to her resume, unlike our culture, her years were a plus, right? There's like added credibility. She was 84. She was a wise valued member of the community. 
She had been married for seven years, which probably meant her marriage went into her mid-twenties or so. And then her husband dies. And she, for decade after decade after decade, probably at least 60 years, if not more, devoted herself to praying and fasting and eagerly anticipating and telling others about the arrival of Messiah in the temple. She was a, a unique godly woman, and so was Simeon. And so these two uh, show decades of prayerful faithfulness and watching and waiting. So it's, it's no coincidence that God allows and shows grace to these two to be involved in this scene. So they have a similar resume. Notice, too, that it ju- they just so happen to be there when the family arrives. Luke, Luke kind of goes out of his way a little bit when he says about Anna coming up at that very hour. She began to give thanks. It just so happened that. She's been patiently waiting, and God says, now is the time. And Simeon is prompted by the, and led by the Holy Spirit, it says, and he has even more reason to be excited, right, about what's going on, because he's received a, a special particular promise that he wouldn't die before he actually set eyes on the Messiah. Think about the anticipation that he had when he woke up every day thinking, is this the day? Where for thousands of years we've been waiting and I get to see him first or want to be some of the first people. Is this going to be Messiah Day? The day that the prophets talked about. Notice too, finally, the similarity in what they're waiting for. Simeon, it says, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's that? God had promised to console or demonstrate his saving compassion towards his people. They have suffered. They have been in slavery. They have uh, been ashamed for deservedly or undeservedly. They've sung and hoped for centuries for this day of consolation, of comfort, of this final day of rest that would come. This idea you can find in the book of Isaiah. So just visualize this as I read some of these passages. These are the things that that these Jews would have been meditating on and waiting for. Isaiah 51.3 For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Doesn't that sound amazing? Isaiah 66, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse. You shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. This is God's restoration of all things to himself. And for them, the coming of Messiah was a one-step thing. It wasn't a two-step thing. So to, to know that any day this Messiah could show up and oust God's enemies and bring about the direct new covenant relationship with God that, that they dreamt about was a massive part of their hope. That's what Simeon was doing. But alongside it, a parallel idea is that Anna speaks to those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
Now, we talked about redemption a little bit in the sacrifice or for the, for the consecrated firstborn, right? That there's a buying back and an exchange that has to happen. But this redemption is the redemption of all Jerusalem. It focuses on God's atonement and the purchase of his people and the claim of his people. Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is a parallel hope where there can actually be the hope of atonement, of right relationship with God. And these two things, Simeon and Anna's hopes, converge in places in the Old Testament that portray this beautiful hope, one of which is Isaiah 52. Just listen to this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, who are looking for this, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the massive hope that they, day by day, are waiting for. It's the hope that we have in Revelation 21, right? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the consolation and the redemption that these Jews for centuries have been waiting for. And finally... It's coming. Try to appreciate the anticipation of this moment. This service might be the only thing between the kids in the room and the presents under the tree. I don't know how you do your Christmases or whatever, but in our family, the last thing before presents was the little skit. So we'd all wear these ridiculous bathrobes and graduation gowns and old paper Burger King hats that got tore up every year and kids would argue who gets to be the donkey and my grandpa would be the innkeeper, which is no longer a thing apparently, so <laughs> to scratch that out. But we but we all knew as kids, like this was the last the last step, you know? Like and so you could you could almost tell they'd like the donkey's like really trotting in, you know, and people are rushing their lines and because there's this anticipation of what's to come. There's a lot of anticipation that comes with Christmas. I don't know what those things are for you and your own family traditions, but they're wonderful things to look forward to. That's an anticipated moment that finally comes, but it is, it's not the anticipation of this temple. Maybe there's moments that you have waited for a long time in your family that finally arrived. I remember when we came home with our daughter from China for the first time. And we turned the corner in the terminal, and there were all of our people, our family, and extended family, and a bunch of people from church. And and this moment that we had had thought about 
for so long, for years. And it finally arrived. They could finally meet their siblings and the friends that they would have. That's a wonderful thing. That's an anticipated moment. But go bigger than that. Think about national anticipation. Think about the colonists seeing the last you know, contingent of the British army sail away in the newly formed United States. Think about even bigger than that, of international anticipation, where after 2,200 days of global war and untold millions of deaths, the Axis powers finally surrender. There is, there is not a way for us to weigh the anticipation of this moment with even international events. The consolation and redemption of God's people signals an international peace brought about by Messiah Jesus. It signals the restoration of what human beings were designed to be. It signals the end of all religious opinion by personally witnessing the glory of the risen Jesus. It signals the resolution of doubt and disease and pain and death and suffering. This is capital A anticipation that all other unders fit under and define. This is literally the thing that every human being is living and looking forward to in one way or another. And all of it is coming because of this little baby. And with that in mind, we read verse 27. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. After all this waiting, century after century, Simeon looks into the eyes of God's salvation. He holds the consolation and redemption of Israel and every nation. Finally, and then he sings this song or this blessing. He gives this incredible explanation of who this Messiah is and how he would bring salvation. Let's pick it up in 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. The first thing we, we note that the arrival of the Messiah means Simeon's assignment is done. He can die now. This is what he's been waiting for. He promised to get a sneak peek and he, get, he gets it. And he says, I can, I can go now. But notice he says too that this arrival of Messiah is is on a global scale. This has not been done in a corner or by secret. This is prepared in the presence of all peoples. This has implications for every nation because this Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles. This reminds us of the light that Zechariah sung about earlier in chapter 1 when he says that the sunrise would come in verse 78 and then 79 to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This light has finally come. Jesus is God revealed. This light to the nations would be glory for Israel because they were the means through which He came. They were the custodians of the Old Testament. 
And he will be the glory of those who recognize him and respond accordingly. It's no wonder that Joseph and Mary marveled at this. This is like, I don't know how many times they do that in Luke, but it's a lot. So we see who this Messiah is. He is God's salvation revealed in a person. But second, Simeon keeps talking and we learn that God's salvation will include rejection. He says in 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. See, when the light of God's salvation arrives in this baby, the light also divides. Light from darkness. It's this inherent quality that this child is destined to divide, that he's actually appointed for this in a way. And through his ministry, some will rise or change for the better, and others will fall, or they, their situation will worsen. Why is that? Because revelation brings with it accountability and responsibility, right? To see and hear Jesus is to see and hear God. To ignore and reject Jesus is to ignore and reject God. It's like hearing that a child is in danger. You have to do something, right? You have two choices. You either step into the dangerous situation and help, or you do nothing and are, are guilty of not caring or of omission, but you, you don't have a neutral place to be. This news binds you. And Jesus is this same thing. He serves as this sign who would be opposed, who would force loyalty or skepticism. His miracles and his teaching leave no room for neutrality or indifference. He would speak and do the, the words and acts of God and therefore become a source of division. And this is exactly what we find, right? As you keep reading Nazareth, miracles on the Sabbath, Pharisees and tax collectors, rich man and Lazarus, those in the kingdom, those outside the kingdom. Jesus says in Luke 12, do you think that I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Some of you will taste and see that even today and tomorrow as you get together with your families. And there is this divide between those who confess Christ and those who do not. So Simeon says this ministry would be divisive, but why does he say it's, it's divisive? Did you pick up on the last phrase? So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. These heartfelt thoughts in the Gospel of Luke are not neutral things. They're the kinds of thoughts that the Pharisees have that assume the worst about Jesus or are trying to trap him. They're the thoughts that the disciples have when they don't know what's going on and they try to figure it out and put themselves first. This is the surfacing of, of, of sinful, the disposition of a, a heart that's sinful. And so as Jesus travels, this is exactly what happens. He, we're exposed. He's God's salvation revealed, but he reveals us. And so therefore creates this divide. Simeon actually warns Mary specifically in a little parenthetical statement of grace to her to prepare for the collateral damage that will come as a result of being the mother of the Messiah. Because his ministry will be characterized by division, because of the revealing of hearts, she will experience this inward pain as she watches her divine son opposed. 
and mocked and abused and eventually crucified. It's going to be difficult for her. And so with all this Davidic king and all this conqueror language, he wants to insert a little ominous note to make sure that she understands the mission of this this Messiah is going to be twofold. As we wrap up our text in verse 40, is basically a summary statement of Jesus as it prepares us for him as a a child in the temple and as a uh, more grown-up version of himself that we'll meet next week. But Simeon's song, it it really, and his blessing really teaches us uh, some fundamental things about the Savior and who he is. He's revealed as a person, and then Jesus reveals our hearts. What are the implications of this section of the Gospel of Luke for us today? Three things. First, God accomplishes his extraordinary will in the midst of normal, everyday obedience. One author says this text is such a strange marriage of the ordinary and extraordinary, and I agree. It's, it's, a, it's an odd thing. But God uses them in the, the, the typical standard way that they were going to respond in a lawful way, right? This is God's law. This is God's Spirit prompting them to obey the law. And it's in that circle of everyday normal obedience that God decides to do extraordinary things and create these, these divine appointments, you could say. So this ordinary couple obeys the extraordinary command from the angel. The not well-off couple brings what they can to the temple to sacrifice according to the law. Simeon, he's doing his thing and he's praying and, and devoting himself to this consolation. Anna, Day after day, year after year, going to the temple, praying. This is everyday stuff happening that God uses and breaks into the midst of to accomplish his extraordinary will. This is where the supplies of grace are often found for the, for the follower of Jesus. They're found in loving him in praise and obedience, in extending ourselves to others in love to meditating and staying in the Word of God and cultivating nearness to Him through prayer. These, these are the ordinary things that God uses, the highways that God uh, delivers grace through oftentimes. Let's not miss that about this text. Second, God's salvation came and is coming in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. This is a really wonderful thing that distinguishes Christianity in a lot of ways from other religions. Christianity is essentially and necessarily personal because Christianity is centered on a person. It's not an ethical system. It's not a book. It's not a set of moral commitments or a political leaning. Christianity boils down to the correct identification of a person. When Simeon looked at Jesus, he said, I am looking at salvation literally in the eye. This, this approach that God takes to redeem people is not secret. It's not a secret society. This was done in the public view of human history. 
This is why the central message of Christianity has to do with who Jesus is and what he did. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus himself incarnated perfect life, exchanging death, victorious resurrection. This is good news because it means the debt of our sin was paid in full. And the reason why this is such good news is because the context of that news is human sinfulness and rejection. There is judgment that we deserve because of our sin, but here is this God-man in the center of of a black and dark story. As we live under the bad news of sin's judgment, we must recognize our need for him to receive this as good news. No one buys medications for conditions they don't have. This is the good news of the gospel, that if we acknowledge our participation, who we are in our sin, Christianity is based on a person. And that means that everything about the Christian faith is personal. Our obedience to him, our, cho- our choice to trust in what he says, the imitation of his behavior, the, the thinking and attitude that we embrace. Sometimes we try to make faith impersonal, like it's distrusting a system of some kind. But God chose to save us through a person for a reason. So if you are trying to grow in your faith because it's what your family does, or you agree in large part with the ethical approach that the Christian system puts forward, or your husband's just into this and so you tag along to keep them happy, understand that 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 type of approach to Christianity will fall far short of what Christianity actually is. Because you haven't encountered the person yet. You haven't seen him for who he is and his glory and all that he's doing and done and will do. Until you are compelled by the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ himself, Christianity won't make much sense at all. Because it's built around a person. Do we view our obedience, even as followers of Jesus, from that personal vantage point? What a stirring reminder in this, in this text that God's salvation came and is coming in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. Third, be on the right side of the divide that Jesus surfaces. Be on the right side of the divide that Jesus surfaces. A lot of people struggle with this, that Jesus is a divisive figure. And many think that if people like him would just not insist on things or be, insist, make these exclusive claims that we would all be the better for it. And we'd be united in a way that we're not because of figures like him. But notice where Simeon puts the location of, of the division of Jesus' ministry. It's in the surfacing and the revealing of the nature of the human heart is how Jesus divides through his ministry. Someone who didn't know any better might categorize a doctor as a person who's responsible for making a lot of people sick because he's around them so much. But you and I know that his proximity to sick people is because of his desire to help, not because he's the cause. And so a lot of people want to frown on Jesus as a divider type of person. But what Jesus is surfacing, what he is revealing, is already the case. 
He's pointing to an existing divide that will be made permanent forever apart from his intervening grace. God has come down in the person of Jesus. And some recognize and, and their creator and Messiah and they live accordingly and others reject his words and castigate him as a person who divides unnecessarily. But we know from Scripture that a divide exists in humanity between those who have humbled themselves before God and those who are holding out. And in this way, Jesus graciously intervenes to point to something that will forever divide people from God. Because when he returns, that divide will be oh so clear and oh so visible. And so consider the gracious intervention of the divisive ministry of Jesus a help to us. Which side of that divide do you sit on this Christmas Eve? Are you able to see? When you look at Jesus, who do you see? What has he done? I want to finish with a picture. We started with a picture, but I want to finish. Some of you have seen this uh, drawing of Simeon. Now, Simeon had a once-in-a-lifetime experience in looking at the baby Jesus that we should not expect to have, right? We won't get to do that. But we will share in Simeon's experience of standing eyeball to eyeball with the Son of Man. We will know what that is like. Simeon's experience in this way will be our experience. And Jesus won't be a baby anymore. He'll be the exalted, authoritative, loving God-man in his glory. And we will look him in the face. There are lots of parables in Luke's Gospel specifically about waiting. The lamps that run out and the servants who presume their master won't return and the master of a great banquet whose guests make excuses and can't come and parable of the ten minas and the ten and five. and These are all designed to make us ready, to prepare us, to remind us that as unique as it seems that Simeon looks on the Savior of the world, we too will look on Jesus Christ, whether we know him or whether we don't. 1 Peter 1, 8-9 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's join with Simeon in marveling at the provision of the Savior who has come and who is coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's still startling to us that God the Son became a man and broke into human history. And taking on, He remained in human form, glorified and, and is now ascended and interceding for us as our great High Priest to ensure our, our full and final adoption into Your family. What a plan. What a Savior you've sent. 
God, I pray you'd help us to appreciate the anticipation of millennia waiting for a moment that finally came in your good time. And as we think about his first coming, God, help us to trust you for his second. And to live in such a way that reflects that we love him and know him and desire to serve him in every way that we can think of. Reassure us that we will see him as he is. And we will be made like him by faith through grace. God, I pray you would lead our our, our gatherings, these holiday seasons that are just ripe with opportunity. Help us not to merely go through a season like this without discussing and meditating and enjoying the truths that they represent. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.